from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer whose name is synonymous with horror, whose work has spanned over 20 years. He's been referred to as a modern-day Algernon Blackwood and has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Benjamin Franklin Award for Popular Fiction. He's joining me on the show today to talk about his new collection of novellas entitled Ghost Written, as well as his upcoming collection entitled They Lurk. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Ronald Malfi. Ronald, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 12th day of April 2023. You have quite the stellar reputation in the horror community, and after reading your book, Ghost Written, I understand the why. Your characters literally breathe on the page. Your settings have their own heartbeat. And the stories themselves are the flesh and blood of a dark, compelling collection of four novellas. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, that is a hell of an introduction. <laughs> I, I hope I live up to that. Thank you, <laughs> I know. I put I so much pressure it. on you. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, good. All right. <laughs> well, so your latest work, Ghost Written, is a collection of four standalone novellas that are linked by sort of a meta-narrative. The four stories all involve books or stories themselves that serve as a repository or functionary of evil. You explain how this collection came together in the acknowledgments at the back of the book, but for those that haven't read it yet, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of how it actually became a collection? Yeah, I mean, I was on a multi-book deal with my publisher, and I had just finished writing a book called Come With Me. And I knew that the next book in that agreement was going to be a novel called Black Mouth. And both of those books dealt with pretty heavy themes. Come With Me is about grief and loss. Black Mouth is about childhood trauma and addiction. And in the time period that I had before starting that second book, I needed a bit of a palate cleanser, something to kind of lighten my <laughs> mood a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I wound up just for fun, kind of writing the first novella in Ghostwritten, the novella called The Skin of Her Teeth. And it was a fun sort of haunted book, haunted story concept <laughs> that I just had a blast writing. And I added a ton of Easter eggs in that one novella <laughs> that referred to my other books. And that was a lot of fun for me to do. And I had no real idea of what I wanted to do with this thing. I wrote it and I sent it to my editor and I thought maybe they would publish it as like a free ebook to kind of bridge the gap between the two novels. But my editor came back to me and she said, hey, you know, we read this and we decided that like, if you can write three more kind of similarly themed novellas, we'd like to put out a standalone collection. So I'm like, oh, I thought that would be cool. I was happy they were behind it and I was up for the challenge. But pretty soon into the project, I realized it's very tough to write four stories in such a cloistered little niche like that. Like mm -hmm. how many haunted book stories can you write and make them completely different? So that was like my biggest concern in writing that. How do I make all four of these different? And I think I achieved it in the way I, oh, yeah. I approached each story. And, you know, so I had fun with them individually. I wrote them in the order that they appear in the book. 
And the biggest fun I had was as I was writing them, I realized that I could kind of link them. So I would have characters, actions in one novella have an effect on other situations in another novella, you Mm -hmm. know, and things would pop up. So you realize that all four of these are kind of living in the same shared universe. And to me, that was really fun and appealing. And it also kind of pushed the boundaries of what I was doing as a writer to kind of make this sort of meta collection so you know at the end of the day ghost written as a book can be read as a novel mm. right where we're following these four different stories in this novel mm. or it is a collection of four novellas that are unrelated mm. you can read them separately and you know the most satisfaction i got from that book is the fact that a reader can look at that in either of those two ways yeah Yeah, it's really interesting. And I don't think I even grasped that you were attempting to do that when I bought the book. Just as I started reading through it, I was like, wait a minute, this is the guy, you know, it was a Finter. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. And what was the detective's name? The female detective uh, Betancourt. Betancourt. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. I see what's happening here. But uh, referring to the first novella, The Skin of Her Teeth. You tell a story about a screenwriter who's attempting to adapt a novel for a film and it's being dramatically hindered. Have you ever written or thought about writing a screenplay? And what are your thoughts on the film adaptation of novels? Uh, Yeah, no, I've done. Actually, I've done plenty of those. I've done a few for TV series. A lot of these things don't ever get made. Mm -hmm. You know, you're hired by a studio to write something and you do it. Also, people who know me very well will know that I have this alter ego who has gone out and written actual horror movie screenplays that have been produced as feature films. So these are movies that are out there that exist that don't have my name attached, but have my spirit. Okay. Uh, And we'll call that alter ego Robbie Rib Spreader. If you ever want to hunt down Robbie Rib Spreader, Spreader. you'll see that he has written quite a few like exploitative kind of B horror movies and uh, also directed a film. Okay. That was a fun time. Um, So yeah, no, no, I've done it a lot. I enjoy it. It's a different approach to writing a novel. I write very big, dense books, Mm. and that is a very solitary endeavor. So the opportunity to take that same muscle and write and flex that in a creative environment where other people are involved in the movie industry, in television, it's very different. And in some parts, it's very restrictive, but in other parts, it's very freeing because you get to share a lot of ideas and you kind of learn a lot from it, too. So, yeah, no, I'm constantly involved in that. I had three books all under option for TV series right around the same time. And I think COVID probably wound up killing all those deals (laughs) on the back end. You know, I wrote some of those projects. Other writers adapted my own material and wrote it themselves. So I saw what their interpretation of my work looked like in a script format. So, yeah, it was very cool. Very cool. And I love movies. So to be a part of that, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's different and it's fun. Okay. Awesome. So tell me again, McRib Spreader, who, who am I looking for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, if you go to IMDb and look up Robbie Rib Spreader. Robbie Rib Spreader. Okay, well, see, where I got, got the neck, uh, I don't know. <laughs> he's got it. Well, that's when McDonald's puts him out once a year. Yeah. It's the Mc, McRib Spreader. Um, <laughs> that's what it now, is. I'm hungry. Yeah. I, I need a McRib. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. It all makes sense now. <laughs> well, so as the story goes, the protagonist... A woman named Gloria is the literary agent of a screenwriter named Davis McElroy, from whom she's attempting to get a screenplay because he's a month past his deadline. McElroy has a history of addiction and has locked himself away in a house in a remote location, which is normally where he goes when he's working on a script. So what is it about the archetype or trope of the alcoholic writer typing away in solitude that is just so compelling for some reason? Um, a lot of it is because it's true, I guess, (laughs) you know, I'll say this, the fun part about writing this book and to dovetail into your question here is horror writers kind of get chastised, unless you're Stephen King, they get chastised for writing about other horror writers. You know, Mm -hmm. if I write books about other writers writing books, you know, it, it becomes this whole kind of thing. So because of what this concept of ghostwritten actually was, which was to embrace the idea of the haunted stories, haunted manuscripts, haunted books, writers, and that whole kind of cadre of people that orbit around that environment, it allowed me to kind of freely dive into those cliches and have fun with them. Mm. Um, you know, and because of that, I embraced it wholly. You know, I wanted my writers to be 
you know, it's hard to say they're cliche because there's also a lot of truth in a lot of that stuff, too. I mean, these characters are they don't just drink because they're writers. They have an addictive personality because they are creatively motivated and need something to anchor to. Mm. And that's kind of how I see. And I think that's how it works a lot in real life, too. But I kind of approach that a lot in this book where I knew I was going to be treading on cliches. So how do I take them and either own them or spin them on their heads? And I try to do that in different ways in all the novellas in Ghostwritten. Either I own it 100% or I present it in a way you think you're familiar with. And then I kind of twist it a little bit. So I kind of went a bunch of different ways with it. But yeah, you know, like they say, cliches are cliches because they're <laughs> because they're kind of the truth. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> as I sip my whiskey and talk to you, <laughs> <laughs> hey, as long as it's not a problem. <laughs> you know, it's funny in on writing. That was the name of Stephen King's book mm-hmm. about writing. Right. If I remember correctly, when he quit drinking and all the drugs he was doing, I think he said the thing that really affected his writing the most was cigarettes that nicotine really helped him focus, which I thought was odd. So Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a cigarette smoker. I like, you know, I'll smoke the occasional cigar or whatever, but mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's a chemical dependence on doing stuff that opens up your creative aqueduct yeah. or if it is the idea of the chemical dependence. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like you go back to Hemingway, who's my boy, and mm-hmm. you just, you know, write drunk, edit sober. And I think there's something to be <laughs> said for that. <laughs> well, in the story, the novel from which McElroy is adapting the screenplay, mm-hmm. it was written while the author was taking care of his dying mother because writing was the only thing that was able to keep him sane during this time. And I interviewed screenwriter Robert Allen Diltz, who wrote the screenplay for What Josiah Saw. And he actually wrote that script while taking care of his estranged father, who was terminally ill, because he also felt like he was going crazy. So I was curious, have you ever used your writing as a form of catharsis or therapy? And if so, if it's not too personal, could you uh, tell us about the circumstances? I mean, yeah, you know, I think that if you're going to spend, you know, the kind of time a writer spends writing a novel that you need to have some of yourself in there and you need to be exploring yourself. Otherwise you're just kind of phoning it in. I mean, you know, I mentioned it earlier in the show, uh, I wrote a novel called come with me, come with me is my attempt to deal with the grief of having a friend who was killed in a mass shooting. And that's where that book came from. And the entire novel is my grief over that. And it was my way of overcoming that situation. I think that book resonated with readers so much because they could see that truth in it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of with everything I write. I mean, my novel, uh, you know, going back to my back catalog, a book I wrote called December Park about five kids growing up in the nineties who decide they're going to find this serial killer who's abducting and murdering these children in their neighborhood. That is me revisiting my childhood and talking to my old friends, Mm -hmm. you know, on the page. Every time I do a book, there's something there. I was talking to a friend recently and I said, you know, we were kind of joking back and forth. And I said, you know, I was asked before at like a book signing that, uh, you know, why don't I write something nice? Why don't I write a a love story? You know? (laughs) And my response to that is, you know what? These are all love stories at their heart. These all start off as love stories, whether it's a love of a spouse whether it's a brother who loves a brother. You know, if you look at my books, these are very character-driven, familial stories. For me to even be interested in writing them, they have to have some element of heart and sentimentality in it, whether you think that's good or bad. And that's kind of what propels me into it. So, I mean, they all have it. Yeah, mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big answer for you. But yeah, yeah they, all, they all have something like that. Definitely. Well... In the story, Davis McElroy is terrified of the novel from which he's attempting to adapt a screenplay. He should be. (laughs) And I won't say why, because I don't want to spoil it, but the whole story has a very unique premise involving the way a book is just organic material that serves as a repository for the story. Mm -hmm. The story itself exists in our consciousness, almost as if it's alive. Mm -hmm. And I know you said in the acknowledgments that you wrote this story as sort of a palate cleanser between, you know, what you just mentioned, the two very dark novels come with me and black mouth. So what other tactics do you have to utilize to lessen the grip that a dark story might have on your psyche? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I generally let it take it, take, yeah. take me, you know, I don't, you know, when I work on these things, I'm in a zone and I just kind of fall into it for a few months. It takes me about three months to write a novel and, okay. and I become unpalatable and I mope <laughs> around the house and I get very needy and clingy and Ugh. it's weird. And I continuously doubt myself. It's this whole weird thing. The rest of the year, I'm an arrogant prick and I get that. <laughs> but when I'm writing, I become this weird, mushy thing that it's sort of like I crawl out of a shell and I'm like there on the beach hoping nobody steps on me. Yeah. And that's kind of how I write these things. And I think that the reason behind that is you have to be, you have to access that vulnerability, that vulnerable part of you to make the emotions in the book work. You know, mm -hmm. I don't do it on purpose. It's just the misery <laughs> that is writing a book. Yeah. yeah. Well, so when it comes to your family, like your wife, is it kind of like how Daniel Day Lewis's wife has to deal with him when he's doing the method acting? He just becomes whoever he's playing for as long as it takes to shoot the movie. Probably. Didn't he quit acting? Probably for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he quit. What did he do? Like seven films or something like yeah, that? Yeah. And he was done. And I think <laughs> that's a good, you know what? There's a guy who knows where his, uh, yeah. his line is drawn. No, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. I walk around the house. I mope around. I don't shower for a day or two. And after a while, my kids are like, daddy, you smell, you know, what do you got? I, I, all right. All right. You know, it's terrible. But no, it's three months of a year. Give it to me. Let me do my job. And then, then yeah. we don't have to do this again for another year. <laughs> yeah, I think Daniel Day-Lewis was much longer. So yeah. your family's getting off easy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next story, The Dark Brothers' Last Ride, is about two brothers that do jobs for a man that's involved in what I assume is something akin to the Russian mob. Mm-hmm. They transport items across state lines that are not necessarily legal. Danny is the sensible, disciplined brother, and Tommy is a bit of a loose cannon that isn't exactly sane and has a history of having breaks with reality. It kind of reminded me of the dynamic between the uh, Gecko brothers and From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah. What is it about a road trip that is such good fodder for a horror story? Well, there's something romantic about getting in a car and driving through some desert highway mm -hmm. where, where there's no line on the horizon, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're just going. And for this story, I wanted to explore that. I wanted to kind of live in that world and to kind of see how I could manipulate it to serve the story and what I could do to play with it. And, you know, you probably don't need a supernatural horror story to make some of those Midwestern towns look creepy. And, <laughs> you know, I think they are on their own. Mm -hmm. But I did want to kind of dive into that a little bit more. And really, you know, the fun part is you could play with the surroundings, you play with the setting and where they're going. But again, you know, like we talked about earlier, the heart of this thing is the brother's relationship and not just even between the two of them, but as the story kind of, you know, propels itself, it's the brother's relationship you find out with the father mm. that's in prison and really where they came to be why they are the people that they are and what that has resulted in in their lives so again you know the interest for me what sucks me into these stories is the character relationships is what they're doing with each other what they mean to each other and trying to explore that and putting them in a situation where they are faced with turmoil and conflict and watching how that kind of plays itself out. I don't outline these things, man. You know, I write them and I just kind of see where the story takes these characters. And if you write these characters true enough, mm -hmm. it'll guide the story where it wants to go. I'm not a proponent of outlining this kind of stuff. I think organically you just jump in and kind of let it play out. I think if you do it the right way, that's how you get the best result for it. Yeah, that's one of the things that's amazed me since I've started interviewing authors is that mm -hmm. uh, I always thought, you know, if you got this book with these perfectly interweaved storylines and, you know, just this linear progression that's just flawless, I'm thinking in my head they have these meticulous outlines. But at best, the people I interview have loose outlines that are subject to change, if at all. So that really blows I, my mind how that works. I'm not a good enough writer to make an outline story feel organic. Yeah. I am a good enough writer to fake it and get you there, <laughs> but I can't, you know, 
and I've read a lot of books that I can tell are plot driven, not story driven, but plot driven. Uh-huh. That there is somewhere in this writer's house is a notebook with bullet points of how this story was going to go. And I don't like that. I mean, that takes me out of the story. You know, I want the characters to be unique and alive and their own individual things and breathe life into the story and have their actions be the result of what the story's result is. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, with regard to the Dark Brothers, the item that they're tasked with transporting has a bit of a vampiric quality towards people as well as time and space. And when you write a book, whether it's dark or a palate cleanser, do you feel that way? Like the story is taking a piece of you to give it life? Because I know you explained how you get for about three months when you're writing it. But mm-hmm. once it's written, do you feel like kind of a piece of you is like left with it? I don't know if a piece of me goes. I mean, it's sort of like if I were a woman with a child breastfeeding it, I would say here. You know, I don't I mean I don't mean to to usurp that analogy, but it's sort of like you've given a part of yourself to this thing and now that thing goes on and exists and you can also still function. I still yeah. function as a person. <laughs> you can, arguably. You can replace your your, yeah. your milk supply. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this got weird. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I mean, anything I spend that kind of time writing, like if I'm going to sit down and write anything, it's got to have some kind of DNA in there, right? Mm. I got to have some DNA. I have no interest in pumping out bullshit for bullshit's sake. That's Robbie Ribs Brothers territory. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Robbie Rib Spreader. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good man. Good man. Good man. Oh, I'm yeah. going to have to interview him. <laughs> he is. I think he's down. I can find him. He's in the French Quarter in uh, New Orleans right now. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Well. Hook me up. <laughs> uh, well, the story involved Danny's introspection about whether or not he should just cut Tommy loose, regardless of the fact that he's his brother, because, I mean, obviously he's quite a bit of trouble. That push-pull between brotherly love and the cold, calculating pragmatism of a criminal is very compelling. What feelings were you attempting to evoke in the reader with the relationship between the Dark Brothers? I mean, just kind of what you said. You know, you've got this one brother who's, this is his job, Mm -hmm. you know, and he deals with some pretty nasty people. And then he's got this brother who's a, just a half-ass mook, right? And like, <laughs> what do you do with this guy? Like, you're, you, you got to take care of him. You got to look out for him. And, you know, how does that factor into what you do day to day? So I don't think it's wholly unique. And like you said, you talk about the Gecko Brothers from Dust Till Dawn, mm-hmm. you know, same kind of thing. I don't think it's wholly unique in that aspect. What I liked about in this story is to take the character of Danny, who's the responsible brother, and to show the humanity in him on how he feels about his brother Mm. in this situation. You never want to make these characters completely black or white, right? Mm. And I think we'll get to this if I could sense you're walking down the book once we get to the Olo story. (laughs) But, you know, you don't, no one is totally good and totally bad. Everybody's got this gray area and you've got to dance around that when you're writing these characters to make them believable and to make them both at the same time compassionate, but vile too, if you want to go that way and have the reader decide on which side of the fence they sit. A lot of this book operates that way. Danny and Tommy in the Dark Brothers novella operate that way. How much does Danny love Tommy, you know, <laughs> as brothers? And really, as I said, everything's a love story, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this is. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the scenes between them, at any moment, he could have cut this guy loose and just said, get the hell out of here mm-hmm. and probably avoided a lot of stuff. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I show them the baggage that he carries for why he doesn't do that, how they grew up, mm-hmm. their father, the responsibility he feels he has. And that, to me, it makes a compelling character. And that's what I'm interested in writing about and what I'm interested in following in a story. Yeah. Well, in the climax, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, is it Mr. Mm-hmm. Chop Tank? Chop Tank. Chop yes. Tank. Okay. Oh, yeah. Mr. Chop Tank, who was the client that they were delivering this uh, mm. item to. 
was a very mysterious character that was a collector of sorts. Mm -hmm. And he seemed like the kind of modern day representation of a magician, kind of like the way the Norse god Odin hung himself from the great tree Yggdrasil so he could discover the secrets of the runes. This man got really involved in the machinations of the universe. So was his character modeled after any mythological being? And if so, who? You are much deeper than I was with this. <laughs> uh, it almost reminds me of it's like when the English professors say, the curtains are blue because the poet wanted to convey his desperation. I'm like, now the curtains are blue because if they were. Chop Tank, what I wanted to do is, this is a gangster story, right? Uh -huh. oh, yes, it's a parallel universe, otherworldly gangster story, but it is a gangster story. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what I didn't want to have them do is to arrive upon someone who is the quintessential cliched gangster guy mm -hmm. so i was thinking about it. i'm like what if the guy they're delivering this to is like a fucking high school history teacher and this is just <laughs> his weekend his weekend thing uh, that he goes to this other parallel universe you know uh, and subsists there as this godlike entity mm -hmm. and then he just goes back and teaches history ap history it, <laughs> you know and and that's kind of that's how i took that character you know there may even be a line in that story where i say something like similar to that but that's how i thought about him the fun part about that story is i own so many cliches early on the gangster motif mm. the car you know like tarantino could have shot the first fucking 40 minutes of that as a movie it would have been fine <laughs> but at the end i wanted to tell the reader hey look i i know i dragged you along on a bunch of cliches uh -huh. here's my flip my flip is this dude is just a guy grilling hamburgers in the desert <laughs> and he's a history teacher and and he's got this other life. Mm -hmm. And I thought to me, there's something more compelling about that than some big nefarious thing at the end, you yeah. know, where it's just something simple as that. It's a very delicate writing in that final scene in the interaction with Danny and Chop Tank and the family and the dinner that they have in the backyard. It's this weird picnic mm -hmm. environment yeah. while all this bizarre shit's happening, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. It just felt right, and I just went with it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next story, and mm -hmm. listeners at home, I'm doing my compulsory book holding. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. assuming this is Olo. This book belongs to Olo is the name of the story. On the cover, yeah. yeah. I, I guess that's him. Yeah. And on the cover of the book, I believe I'm looking at him. No creepy bastard. So... It's about a young man that's the child of two novelists, a woman who is a successful novelist mm -hmm. and a man who is a bit of a hack and an alcoholic mm -hmm. that believes that his yeah. writing is so deep that publishers just don't get it. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> within and I guess I'm probably getting deep again, <laughs> but uh I don't know. The way I kind of looked at the family dynamics, I don't know if you've ever heard of the six roles of the dysfunctional family. I have. I know yeah. what you're getting at here. Yeah. yeah. So like his, I, I did not study that for okay. this story. You know? Yeah, because his parents were good representations mm -hmm. of the caretaker, yeah. the identified patient, and the lost child. Mm. So assuming that you did not, uh, in answer <laughs> to my question, that you did not use that to construct the family, what was the assignment of certain aspects to the mother and the father meant to accomplish to kind of drive the story forward? Yeah, I mean, they came out more organically in the story itself. And I look, I know the dysfunction model that you're talking about. I think a lot of these things come from having observed people who have been in situations, characters in real life, and they, they develop these models. I think you do the same thing when you're creating a character. You don't I don't necessarily have to refer to a model of whether it's dysfunction, whether it's grief, whether it's this and that, because I know how people are and I know how people act. And when you, you know, if you portray them honestly enough, they'll fit into whatever metric exists out there. But, you know, with this story, it was all about a woman who had this son, Olo. She's a successful novelist. She marries and chronically marries, as it's brought up in the novella, chronically marries artists, mm -hmm. writers, musicians, screenwriters. And we just happen to catch this poor bastard, you know, <laughs> that she's married to in this story, who is just, and he makes a comment to Olo about, you know, he goes, your mother is a creative vampire. She doesn't <laughs> suck my blood. She sucks my talent. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that. You know, I, I've messed around with that concept before in the past, but like, there's something about that that I found so in 
endearingly genuine to this type of story that I had to include that. And there even is like, you know, for the astute reader reading that story, when there's a passage, like a passing paragraph where they reference the mother, where she actually is vampiring Mm -hmm. you know it's like it has nothing to do with really the story at hand it's sort of just an anecdote to go wow this motherfucker kind of knew what he was talking about he's not just (laughs) crazy i love that part about it out of all the stories in ghost written this one could have been its own standalone novel Mm. i was really indebted to the characters i really felt at home telling that story i loved olo as a character and the challenge that he posed which was to make him both sympathetic and the villain at the same time in this story. Mm-hmm. And that that is a delicate line to walk. I had to do it for, I don't what is this, 200-page novella or whatever it is. And I feel good about how I did it, but it is a dance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very hard to make a character both sympathetic and vile, mm-hmm. you know? And I think he fits the bill. I mean, that's how I wanted him to come across. I wanted the reader to end that story and not know if they are championing him or hating him you know so when you're ascribing a certain amount of vampiric like qualities Mm -hmm. to her she normally marries artists Mm -hmm. are they usually artists that are with less talent than her is she like trying to keep herself in the one-up position no i would think that they would be artists of equal or greater talent that she siphons uh-huh, okay. and, and she uses there is kind of a fun easter egg in this entire book is the character of a screenwriter named george lee poach mm-hmm. right so george lee poach is mentioned in every novella in this collection and in the skin of her teeth he's a kind of a throwaway anecdote that is brought up throughout the course of the narration he pops up in the dark brothers because his camper is found with his Emmy awards in it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, he is one of the former boyfriends of Olo's mother in this book belongs to Olo. And he is, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but in the final novella, the story in this collection, he's on a Reddit message board inquiring about this manuscript, mm-hmm. you know? So like when I was thinking about her functioning as this kind of, you know, you've seen, actual vampires you've seen like psychic vampires i'm like what about a creative vampire what about a woman or a man or could be whatever you know but this woman who doesn't put fangs into your neck she absconds with your creative aura and robs you of all your creative ability and on the surface that's a cool concept the metaphor there is exactly what it sounds like it's writer's block Mm. it's every creative person's fear of running dry of the thing that pays the bills and the thing that gets them going, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where all that came from. It's just something that rang kind of eerily true with me, you know? And the thing I love about it in the Olo story is it's not the focus of the Olo story. <laughs> this is not a story about a creative vampire. Mm-hmm. This is the story about her son, who's a weird freaking kid who did this weird thing. Uh-huh. And I just kind of throw her story in there as sort of anecdotally to everything else. But I had to get it in there. I just felt it was so true to what was going on in that house. Mm-hmm. Creepy little house. Yeah. Olo's strange way of dressing you know the Mm button-down shirts the clip-on ties the i think he had loafers on that had big buckles on them Mm -hmm. do you think that would have been as creepy on an adult and the reason i ask is because i had johnny compton on and we were talking about how do you make something inherently pleasant like a child's laughter or something like that Mm -hmm. creepy And he brought up this example of an episode of Bart Simpson where Marge was telling one of her friends, she's like, oh, it's just so weird. Bart is flying his kite at night now. You know, (laughs) it shows a scene of him just out there by himself in the dark. So it's like, is that something that you could only pull off with a child? And how did you construct that to just make him a weird, off-putting little kid? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that's just solely contributable to children i think that what makes things eerie and off-putting and unsettling you know when as people when we look at things we become unsettled when they look like they're attempting to integrate in what we believe to be reality right so it's unsettling to see a 10 year old child wear a clip on tie and a clown mask standing at a park handing out birthday invitations because you can look at what he's doing you kind of say 
I get why he thinks some of the things he's doing seem right, mm-hmm. but they're off. Yeah. You know? And I think that's kind of at the crux of what I feel is really just that kind of ingrained horror element is things that are almost right, but they aren't. Years ago, I wrote a book called The Night Parade. It's about a pandemic that kills off a bunch of people and a guy on the run with his daughter trying to save her life. This was before the actual pandemic that we actually had in real (laughs) life. But there's a scene in that book where I think it encapsulates the eeriness of that whole novel. And it does exactly what you're talking about here. It's a ice cream man, right? Mm -hmm. In his truck coming down the road, but he's coming down the road in the middle of the night in winter, Mm -hmm. right? It's something so basic and simple but it's just slightly out of the norm. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it rolling down my road in the middle of the night in December with his little bells tinkling? <laughs> and those are the things that I find creepy because what they speak to is some other thing out there thinking that it knows how to ingratiate itself upon us. You know, you look at all this AI stuff now, right? Where it's writing like people and making images like people mm-hmm. can make images and, and all this stuff. And it's slightly off, right? It's this other consciousness looking at what we do as people and saying, I think I could duplicate that. They like ice cream. They like ice cream trucks. Let me send it out there in December at midnight. Mm. No, they, they missed that part, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I think a lot of horror comes from stuff like that. It's that almost symbiosis with humanity, mm. I guess. But, wow. Yeah. Well, as far as the end... You find out that Olo is not a harmless child. He's actually quite dangerous, but Mm -hmm. it's really not his fault. And I don't know about everybody else, but for me, I kind of felt bad for him. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say whether or not the story has a happy ending for Olo, even though I think Olo feels like it does have a happy ending for him. So was it your intention for the reader to feel so much conflicting emotion towards Olo? And if not, what was it about Olo's character that kind of just made it necessary? You know, like I said earlier, I wanted to really have this completely gray character where he's not good. He's not bad. He is just doing what he does mm-hmm. and have the reader kind of fall upon what they think of him at the end of that story. I don't know if the end of that story is good or bad. There's a secondary character in that book, one of the kids who kind of took control of the story Mm. without me realizing it as we were writing. And I kind of let her have her way. And she kind of went on to be a bit of the hero of this story. And for her, I guess it's a happy ending, but I didn't want a story that was clearly point A to point B to the end. And it's a happy or sad ending and whatever. I wanted this to be extremely vague Mm -hmm for the reader to finish this thing and kind of feel a little bit dirty reading it and going, (laughs) I don't even know, like, am I compassionate towards this kid or do I realize he's a monster or is this not even his fault? And all of those things, if you leave that story wondering that that's great because that's the point of this story. Really? I mean, it's, this is how people are really, you know, Mm -hmm. no one's good and bad. No one's black and white. No one is just fucking Darth Vader and killing people. There's always, some other elements involved. And that was a challenge in writing it. And if people come away wondering that stuff, then great that I did my job there. I'm happy with that. Truth bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the final story, oddly enough, is Mm -hmm. entitled the story. And uh, like the other stories, it illustrates the power that resides in the story itself. It's about a freelance journalist named Grady that receives a call from the police with regard to a woman he used to be very close with named Taryn that apparently went insane and killed herself. And Grady finds that Taryn was involved in a reading a choose your own adventure style story, which I myself read way back in my preteen years. And I loved it when Black Mirror did their uh, Bandersnatch episode. So I'm assuming you read the Choose Your Own Adventure series as well. Are there any other childhood experiences that you've inserted into your stories? And are there any that you want to insert in the future? I mean, look, all my experiences get into these things at some point or another. You know, I read a lot of those books when I was a kid. They weren't the best writers writing those Choose Your Own Adventure <laughs> books. But the concept kind of stuck with me. And like I said, when I was trying to think of different 
ways to tell these haunted stories. This is one that just kind of kept coming back to me. It's sort of this, you know, what if a choose your own adventure kind of ingratiated itself into your real life mm. where the lines of reality and fiction blurred. And that's sort of the meta idea of this book to begin with. Right. So it kind of works. And you're just kind of a prisoner to where your readability <laughs> takes you. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess to be fun with it. Yeah. I don't know. It was just a concept I couldn't shake and I had to follow it through. Gotcha. Well, in the story, the protagonist Grady worked with Taryn on a podcast called The Spectral, which researched UFOs, Bigfoot, and conspiracy theories. Taryn was the believer and Grady was the skeptic. So in a sense, they balanced each other out on the show as well as in their personal lives. Is that balance important for characters, whether they're romantic or platonic? If that doesn't exist, will the readers lose interest? And if not, what is the dynamic that's necessary for a compelling relationship between two characters? So that was not something that I consciously put into the story. Mm -hmm. However, subconsciously, I recognize the need for any story to move forward. You have to have some kind of conflict. And that conflict doesn't always have to be man versus whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what the fight is. The conflict here is belief versus belief, is Grady's belief versus what Taryn believed. And they were friends and they had a romantic relationship, yet they believed completely different things. And not only did they believe completely different things, but they had different ideas of where they wanted their futures to go, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, that poses conflict in characters. If they're going to be there and sit down and talk, they're not going to be both on the same page saying, yes, we both should do this and let's go. There's no conflict there. One has always got to be the naysayer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what Grady's role is in this. I think if you write enough, you recognize that that's what makes compelling characters. So this wasn't something deliberately planned out. But as I'm coming up with the story, and I know this is what I want to tell, I recognize the need for these characters to be in the position that they are, that one is a believer, one is not. One is dead when the story starts and the other one is regretful that his belief or how he chose to believe affected this other person's outcome, mm -hmm. you know? And again, it's conflict. Conflict drives these stories. Conflict drives your characters, your plots, your story, all this stuff. And that's just another element of conflict. Mm -hmm. Well, the origin of the story in the story uh, my apologies for the redundancies <laughs> is unknown. So is there an origin of the story that the reader can suss out if they try hard enough, or is it just meant to be a mystery? Oh, you're talking about like what Taryn was looking at before. She well, the, died, the, the way the, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. but the, the story itself kind of comes out of nowhere. It's like, Mm -hmm. What is the origin? So uh, you've mentioned multiple Easter eggs. Is there something within all of the novellas or just that one you'd be able to suss out, figure out what the origin is, or is it just kind of supposed to remain a mystery? So there is stuff that I left out that I guess you could put into it. So the idea behind the story is that it will attach itself to someone mm -hmm. and give them a story that's suitable for who they are. So when we meet Grady, and he's looking at the suicide of his friend, the story he receives kind of dovetails into what she may or may not have been doing because his reality is fractured, uh -huh. may or may not have been doing to result in her death, right? And to result in what she was looking at. The other angle to even go even deeper, if you look at the clues early on in that story of what Taryn was looking at mm -hmm. really has nothing to do with what is presented for Grady. What Taryn is looking at, if you look at the music that she listens to and Grady takes her album records and stuff, and if you look at the record albums she's listening to, what she's highlighted there, the phrases she wrote on her wall, all of that stuff will actually add up to what NASA put on the Voyager's golden record satellite when they shot it into space. So oh. everything from Chuck Berry's guitar to the classical music to the different languages that say hello, uh -huh. uh, these are greetings that are written on her wall. If you want to really hammer that down, because Taryn was infatuated with UFO phenomenon and all that stuff, 
she was researching UFO phenomena. So I don't go into it in detail. I Uh leave the clues there. But if anybody is familiar with what we sent up into space on the Voyager satellite, that was what Taryn's story was. Okay. Yeah. So it gets deep for, I don't know, whatever fucking reason. I decided (laughs) to get deep with that. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's there. All right. Well, all around amazing (laughs) freaking book. Uh, Thank you, sir. Yeah. Listeners at home, ghost written. Buy it. Read it. Love it. But uh, you have another upcoming collection, which I didn't look way, way back in your bibliography, but it seems like it's kind of a trend, these collections of novellas. Is that something you've done in the past or is this just kind of a... Yeah, no, not really. Early on in my career, I worked with a lot of small press publishers who have gone out of business or whatever the case may be. And the stuff that I had published with them also went out of print Mm. and they went down. So I'm with a publisher now who's very supportive of my work and I'm writing a lot of new material for them. And I get a lot of readers asking about the old stuff. So this publisher decided to bring back some of this old stuff. So in July, I've got a book coming out called They Lurk. So They Lurk is a collection of five novellas. Four of them are reprints from when I was publishing over a decade ago with Dark Fuse Press. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a bunch of novellas for their book club and stuff. These books have been out of print for years. So this new book, They Lurk, will have four of these out-of-print novellas included in this book, plus a, a brand new novella that I had been working on this past year that I felt you know, fit the theme of those novellas. So I include it in there. So you're going to get a book that's got five novellas, four reprints that people have been looking for for a while mm-hmm. and a brand new one in there too. So, nice. you know, there was just so much material that had gone out of print that I really wanted to bring back and people were asking about, and this seemed like the best way to do that. Okay. Sounds awesome. Well, I wanted to kind of get into your writing style, writing process, writing Genesis, I suppose. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to find your literary voice and how did you know when you'd found it? (laughs) Man, I don't know. I think I'm still finding it. Every, Every time I write a book, it's a little bit different. Yeah. I don't think it ever ends. It's sort of like When you're a doctor, you practice medicine. I guess when you're a writer, you practice writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I read voraciously when I was younger. I still read a lot. And I read not just in the horror genre. I read everything. I've always been that way. And you know what? Every time I read something, something new kind of sparks in me. And I take that and I put it in my mental toolbox as a writer. So, yeah. No, every book I write is another exercise for myself on... How do I tell this story different? Look at the history of books. How many fucking books have been written, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's 2023, right? We're in April. What is it? April 12th, 2023. When it's time to write a new novel that I'm working on right now, what do I do to say, shit, I got to give something that hasn't existed yet. I got to write something that has, that's almost impossible, right? Mm -hmm. So what you do is you know the story you want to tell and you find the most unique way to tell it and the most unique way to tell it is generally a combination of other ways that people have done it before you yeah you know i look at writers like i love ernest hemingway i love peter straub lately i've been reading authors like josh mallerman philip fracassi these are my peers these are guys who are writing right along with me rebecca Rowland as an editor as a short fiction writer these are all character-based stories very dark very in-depth, but approaching things in a different way that gives me a little bit of a buoy to go and write myself. Go, oh, this person's explaining it this way, or you know, I'm going to write a story that takes place in a small town. I've done that before. How do I describe a small town differently than the last five books where I described a small town, mm-hmm. right? So you you read constantly. You picture things from a different arena, and, you know, If I couldn't do it, I shouldn't be in this line of work. I think I just kind of sit there and say, okay, how do I say the same thing that's been said a thousand times differently (laughs) so people will get, and that's really what this all comes down to, Mm. you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of being a voracious reader when you were younger and Hemingway and the like, which novel radically altered your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? That's very tough. 
I can't say one novel. There are several writers and several novels that have contributed to that. I was a devout Stephen King fan mm -hmm. growing up. I read all his stuff, but really it wasn't until I was, I don't know, maybe in college or so where I read Peter Straub that showed me how differently you could tell those same kind of stories, mm -hmm. you know, and how you could approach narrative. I miss the dude. I mean, the fact that we will never have a Peter Straub novel again, you know, it just kills me. Um, but that changed me around that same time reading. Like I said, I'm an Ernest Hemingway fan reading a lot of his stuff when I was in college after reading a ton of Stephen King work, which was really just kind of blatant on the page. Hemingway had this whole iceberg approach to fiction, which is I'm going to tell you just an inch of my story. Mm -hmm. And the rest of my story is the rest of the iceberg under the water. The other 90% that I'm not going to write about that I'm going to force you to infer as you read this book. Mm. That's brilliant to me. And that's stuck with me for better or worse. I don't know. But like I've taken that with me as I write my own work. But every writer I read does that. Thomas Pynchon, uh, Against the Day, uh, V, Gravity's Rainbow, books like that that are so incomparable to anyone else. And even more recent writer, Stephen Graham Jones, I thought his book, The Only Good Indians, fantastic. Just, just a narrative slam dunk mm -hmm. uh, on that book. Paul Tremblay does the same thing in all his works. Just working with character, working with narrative, showing you the boundaries that you can push. As a writer, you kind of learn that and you study it. You take all those things in and you say, okay, this is what these guys are doing. What can I add to this to fill out the rest of this circle? You know, mm -hmm. what can I add? So that's kind of how I, I look at that stuff. You know, I'm a musician too. Mm -hmm. There's no sense of playing music that other bands sound just like you're playing, right? <laughs> so yeah. the same thing with writing, man. There's no sense of writing shit that sounds like other people's stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of how I take it. Well, I know that you're not an outliner, but no. I have kind of a three-part question. Mm -hmm. What is your writing medium, your writing atmosphere, and is there anything you avoid that you believe stifles your creativity? Hmm. Uh, that's a tough one. I don't know. Say that again. Phrase, rephrase that. <laughs> is there anything you avoid because, well, I'll give you an example, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was watching Rogan's podcast he had on Chuck Palahniuk. Yes. And, and they were talking about testosterone and steroids. And, you know, Chuck Palahniuk, even though he's a skinny guy, he's pretty jacked. Yeah. And he was talking about running cycles of steroids, but he stopped doing it because he said when he did steroids, he was all about working out. He was all like alpha male juiced up mm -hmm. and he got like writer's block. He couldn't write. So he was like, well, fuck, I'd rather write. So I don't take steroids anymore. Mm hmm. So something like that. Is there something you avoid because you feel like it stifles your creativity? Man, not really. I go in these loops. I get in these zones. I know I've got deadlines to do stuff. And for me, it's more of a juggle of how do I transmit my creative energy into a timeline that is commercially beneficial for my publishers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this whole business versus art mm -hmm. kind of thing that I work through. It's been fine so far, but you know, there's nothing really I necessarily stay away from or anything like that. I mean, I get what Chuck's saying. I, <laughs> you know, we were under the same publishing banner for a while. I know kind of his, his story there, <laughs> so. but no, I, you know, not really my writer's block. It's like every writer's block. It's all in my head. And I just kind of, kind of, mm -hmm bumble through it and I know when it's there and kind of how to get away from it. The funny thing about writer's block is it's really not about going, Oh shit, I can't write. It's about going, yeah, I know I don't really want to write right now. How do I force mm -hmm. myself to do that? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, do you need a particular atmosphere? Like, do you have the spot where you sit down? Not really. I've written in my dining room. I've got a little office in a library off of the main floor of my house. I write on legal pads if I'm on the road somewhere, wherever it strikes me. I just kind of put it down. Okay. You know, I know I got to get it done. So, Do you do anything besides reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Um, You know, I enjoy good movies. I like 
thinking about movies and thinking about them in the context of literature. And you know, if I watch a really kind of tonally strong film, mm -hmm. I look at that and go, how would I get that tone on the page? What are the words I would use? What are the sentence structures I would use to convey that tone? You know, long sentences, short sentences, the brevity, the description. How would I go about that? I'm constantly thinking about that stuff. I never really enjoy watching or reading anything because I'm always kind of thinking like that. Uh -huh. It sucks because I love that stuff. But, you know, there's always an element of that there. I mean, it's just constant reading and watching movies. Yeah. Well, you are extremely prolific in both literature and music. Do you have some sort of schedule that you kind of adhere to to keep up that strong work ethic? <laughs> I know I probably should. I'm all man. I feel like I'm always cramming. Like I'm always at the last minute oh, yeah. for, for doing everything I do. Yeah, I am. I've got a book due at the end of June. I just started it like last week. I guess so. I got to write 500 pages in three months. And my wife is just like, "Well, why don't you ask for an extension on that?" I said, "Well, if I ask for an extension, I'm just going to waste those months and just write in three months anyway. So I might as well get it done." That's the best way I work. I work under pressure like that. Uh, you know, the same thing with the music. I, you know, it's a little different with the music. With the books, I'm with the publisher. I have editors and agents and all this shit that I got to tend to. So mm -hmm. I have to answer to that. With the music, we own our own record label. So we do our own stuff at our own time. But we do also still set dates. Like, So we've got our new album coming out in July. And we've set a date. We've got an album release show. Those fucking songs haven't come back to us. Like, yet we have that album doesn't exist quite yet, but we've set on that date. So we, we do that to ours. It's such a masochistic way to kind of go about doing it. But, you know, without it, I don't think we would do it. So, yeah, I need a push in that regard. Well, you alluded to them already, your publisher, Titan Books. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about your publishing evolution? Like, I know you started off independently publishing period, right? Or was it always with small presses? Yeah, I, I started with small presses. My first novel was published with the small press. That was the year I graduated college and I thought, oh shit, now I can wear my my blazer with the suede patches. I can smoke my <laughs> pipe and I have, now I've, I've arrived. And then the reality of what that meant kind of <laughs> fell down on me and they robbed me and I, I didn't make a fucking dime and that book sucked. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of shit with that. But what that did for me is it got me noticed by other people, other writers, other editors who are starting small publications who said, hey, send us your next work. And I did that. And Maybe some writers make it successful by writing one novel and then Penguin Random House picks it up and they publish it as a bestseller and that's great. For me, it was just a continual climb up the ladder and to kind of use my own resources and ingenuity and to kind of see how I could work this system. And I went from being in small press publications and, and moving up to mass market publishers to major mass market, you know, New York publishing houses and, you know, so I kind of climbed it over a time span of, I don't know, what's it been, 17, 18 novels mm -hmm. in my career in 20 years. It's almost a book a year. That was the way that worked for me. It was a lot of hard work. I mean, if I only had one novel in me, maybe I would have held out for the big payday. But I know I've got a lot of shit and I want to write. And I was not afraid of taking a chance and saying, all right, here's some books I got. Here's some ideas. Let's go with it and see what we can do. I love being with Titan. Titan's great. Awesome. They treat me fantastic. I have no complaints. The books are selling well, and everybody seems to be happy. So I have no complaint right here. Nice. Well, I read something about Amazon developing a series based on your novel, Bone White. Mm -hmm. What's the status on that? You're dredging up bad memories. No, oh, no. Yeah, that was true. So that was, I don't remember exactly when that happened, right before the pandemic, so Bone White was picked up by Amazon as an original series. Mm -hmm. Within the next year, me, my agent, some other writers getting together sold two other TVs. They sold Come With Me as a TV series to NBC Universal. They sold an original concept that I had for a story called Small Town Horror, which I'm actually writing as a novel right now. Also to Amazon, Fox, Disney, Amazon. And this was all during like the pandemic and slightly post-pandemic. And how this system works is you send these ideas in. If they like them, 
they buy them from you. They take a year to develop them. If they don't feel like they've accomplished enough in a year, they buy them from you again for another year and continue to develop them. <laughs> in one of those three projects, I was actually writing scripts. So I was hired as a screenwriter to do those scripts. So you know, a lot of experience. Uh, the money was decent. It was just a cool place to be. The part that sucked is within about a month, I heard that all three projects, they just died on the vine. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing this long enough to know that that's kind of par for the course. Every book I've ever written has been optioned for a TV series. It has been optioned for a movie. Yeah. And I just kind of watch it go. And then it ultimately dies. I got one right now with my book, The Narrows. It's in an option phase right now for a feature film. And yeah, I hope it works. Yeah. But we'll see. You know, they come and they come and they come and they go. And yeah. that's what it is. But at this point, I would love to see something actually make it to the screen. Everything has gotten so close and then fallen apart. So, you know, well, I keep trying at it. You know, I'm thankful that there's a lot of other screenwriters out there who read my books and adapt it, mm -hmm. try to bring it to the screen. So that's the position I'm at with that. But yeah, Bone White, man. None of your books have attempted to attack their screenplays, have they? No, not, not violently, no. I have no baggage like that. No, I'd be glad to send them along. No, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a waiting game and, and just kind of see how it plays out. Listeners at home, that was an inside joke. Read the book. <laughs> I got you, Vince. I got you. Well, tell me about your band, Veer. I was watching some videos on YouTube before you signed on, was getting all amped up, ready to break something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I'm not writing books, I'm performing with a rock band called Veer. I'm the singer. I play rhythm guitar. I write the music. And uh, we've been around since, I don't know, 2016. We have one album out that came out in like 2018 or so, a couple of singles after that. And we were in the middle of recording our second album right when the pandemic broke. That waylaid us for like about a year and a half. So... We took a long time to gather that up. That album will be out in July. So okay. that's our second album with Veer. And I love it. I mean, it's a different creative outlet. I'm a 45-year-old guy who grew up loving fucking, you know, 90s grunge rock mm -hmm. music and alternative rock and stuff. And being the songwriter of this group, that's kind of what I do. I kind of harken back to that time period and... and just write stuff that appeals to me. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hit writer's block with one of my books, I kind of change that train track, Yeah, you know, and I go over to the next side and I start working on some music and that frees that up. So yeah, new album's coming out in July. It's called Soft Machines. Mm -hmm. I'm so fucking proud of it. For four guys who are just a bunch of knuckleheads getting together playing rock music, this album is very deep, mm. and I'm very proud of that part of it. It's got a lot of tonage to mm. it, I guess I could say. <laughs> you know, I'm very excited about it, and we got a show coming up this weekend, so we're going to be doing that. So, so how is the process of writing song lyrics as opposed to prose? I mean, it must be different due to the fact that uh, you can actually derail any kind of writer's block by moving on to that mm. avenue or... Am I off base there? Yeah, no, I mean, you know what? The lyrics for songs, song lyrics are the last thing I do when I write a song. Oh, okay. Like we're rehearsing songs before I even have lyrics and I'm just kind of mumbling nonsense until I get to the point where like I then write shit down mm. and that's how we record it. When it actually comes to writing the lyrics, I recognize the strengths in both writing for music and writing for prose, which is... You know what? The more ambiguous, and this is my personal take, but the more ambiguous, the better. If I write a love song, I'm probably not going to have the word love in it. <laughs> I'm going to have the word feather mm. and ink and tree because <laughs> that's how I think of love. So, you know, it's the same with my fiction. Like I do that sort of thing because so many people, like 90% of the people who are going to write this shit, if you're going to write a love song, you're going to have the word love in it. I don't fucking do that. I, I do it. I do it differently. And then I don't even write love songs. I write like miss you songs. Uh -huh. Miss you songs are, are my version of love songs. <laughs> but, you know, it's all about just getting the emotion across. It's not so much about the words individually as it is the words all put together that get an emotion across, you mm -hmm. know, and that's what it is. But yeah, words are the last thing that goes into writing a song for me. Well, what is the life of Ronald Malfi like outside of writing and playing music? 
Or is there one? Is, is, is there is there a life outside of it? This is what I do. I don't know. I got two little girls, man. I love them, and I spend time with them, and that's what we do. I am blessed that even in my band, I get to jam with my brother on drums and my two best friends on guitar. I and knew bass. that had and, to be your you brother. Know. That dude is the spitting image. He looks... <laughs> I know. Like We've made a pact where... I grow my hair long and he keeps his yeah, shorts. Yeah, that would be horrible. You guys would be. We're not even twins. Yeah. We're like eight years apart, but it's, but still. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that kind of gives me some, there's some peace there with like people who you know and you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just what it is. It's about just, you know, finding those things that give you creative satisfaction and you can spend that satisfaction with the people you care about. Well, Ronald, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it, man. This is great. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers and listeners know about? Well, just kind of like you touched on earlier, I've got a a new book coming out in July called They Lurk. It is five novellas. And if you like creepy, hoary shit, you probably do if you're listening to the podcast. (laughs) But uh, I I would recommend go out and get it. And that same month, if you're a music guy or a music girl, you know, my band's new album, Soft Machines, will be out in July as well. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Ronald, thank you again for joining me. Thanks, buddy. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for an interview with yet another huge name in the horror community. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.